Hi, Coffee and Convo listeners. I'm your host, Liz Bullard, and here's a quick ad before we get into our episode. Welcome back, Coffee and Combo listeners. This is your host, Liz Bullard, and this is my podcast where I talk about wellness, politics, and activism with friends, leaders in the community, and just other great conversationalists. And this episode, I am joined by Doug Knoll, and I am very excited to talk about him and with him because he is an author, and he has a very interesting program called the Prison to Peace Program. Is that correct, Doug? Prison of Peace. Prison of Peace. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really interested, but first of all, welcome. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me on the show. I think your audience will enjoy our conversation today. I really think so as well. And so as, you know, a welcome to Coffee and Convos, I ask everyone my famous, you know, are you a coffee or a tea person? So like, what's like your perfect <laughs> like brew or perfect cup? First thing in the morning, four shots of espresso. No. Yes. That doesn't keep you up. Like I had like a, a dirty chai, which is espresso and chai tea. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, like I was up. I couldn't, I couldn't settle down. No, I'm good. That's it for the day. I, when I was practicing law many, many years ago, decades ago, I do go through three pots, pots of coffee a day. But now I have my four sh- shots of espresso in the morning sitting in the hot tub with my wife and I'm good to go for the rest of the day. Oh, that sounds like wonderful. So like, are you just like high energy, high impact? Like, does that kind of represent who you are? Pretty much. Uh, You know, yeah, I'm kind of a a go guy. I mean, I'm up at usually 6 a.m. and in bed at 8.30 and just nothing stopping in between. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. And so I was reading and looking at your book, Deescalate. And Mm -hmm. so Please share a little bit about the book, but also about who you are. Sure. Well, let me start with who I am and then and how my fourth book, Deescalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less, came about. Mm-hmm. I am, by professional training, I'm a lawyer turned peacemaker. I went to law school and was a trial lawyer, civil trial lawyer for 22 years, handling large, complex financial cases. And then through a series of events, that I won't bore you with, I decided that that was not my calling. And I went back to school to earn my master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies to become a peacemaker. I was trained by the Mennonites at Fresno Pacific University in Central California. And I left the practice of law and became a mediator and an arbitrator and a peacemaker in being engaged by people to handle really difficult, intractable, emotional disputes, lots of times family business conflicts, organizational conflicts, religious con- congregational disputes, um, you know, all of these very contentious. The fights were kind of really about nothing, but about everything and helping people navigate through all of that. And I never found a skill that really helped me calm people down. Mm-hmm. Nothing that I was taught and I studied all the stuff from the 60s forward, active listing and nonviolent communication, none of that stuff works. Never did, never has, never will. And But I was at a loss. And, and I part of my master's degree study was getting into the, at that time, burgeoning science of neuroscience, which was just beginning to come out with the new scanning technologies. And so 
I was in a mediation one day and to make another fairly long story short, I got the idea of listening to emotions. And I was able to help this couple solve a very contentious uh, problem they were having with each other where they hated each other. And at the end of the session, they went out of the, not only did they settle a lawsuit between them, but they walked out holding hands and had lunch with each other. And four hours before, if there'd been AK-47s, there would have been blood on the floor. Mm. And that was pretty remarkable. So I knew what I'd done. I started to replicate it, understood what I was doing. And then in 2007, a brain scanning study came out of UCLA showing us exactly what was going on when this particular process is utilized called affect labeling. So now I have the science to back up what I was doing. Eventually, um, I was getting pushback from colleagues. Nobody likes emotions. I've done a lot of research into that. And, you know, pe people are scared of emotions. So I got the opportunity with my colleague, Laurel Coffer, to found the Prison of Peace Project in 2010 to go into maximum security prisons. We started in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world at that time, training lifers and long-termers how to be peacemakers and mediators to stop prison violence. And the very first skill we taught them was this idea of affect labeling, listening to emotions. And the results were absolutely phenomenal. Uh, we were in the women's prison for three years, and then it, that was repurposed uh, to a men's prison. We went into that prison as a men's prison, mm -hmm. not knowing whether it would work with men. It worked even better with the men than it did with the women. And now we're in 15 California prisons, 15 prisons in Greece, and a prison in Connecticut. And our entire curriculum is now on film. We're in post-production. And we will have prison of peace available to any prison or correctional institution in the world by the end of the year, which is really exciting Fantastic. for us. Um, along the way, this gets to the book. Along the way, uh, inmates started asking me to write a book. They all knew I was an author. I'd written three books. And they wanted something they could give to their families because they saw the transformational changes that were happening with them and in prison and said, we, need, we can't ex really explain all of this. You're the teacher, not us. Could you please write a book? And so ultimately I did. And that became Deescalate, which was published in September of 2017. And today it's in its second printing. It's in four languages and has done remarkably well. Quite proud of it. And so today I teach people how to listen to other people into existence, which is sort of the foundation of learning how to listen to emotions. I mean, that's a very amazing story. And I love how, you know, you're now a peacemaker because it really is a skill. And I, I love, again, the journey of how you started out in one prison and now you have expanded and you want to make this available to everyone. And that's just very awesome. And um, I like how you mentioned listening to emotions, because often it's like not the words, but it's the emotion that people are trying to communicate and they don't do a, a great job of doing that. And um, one thing you talk about is being able to de-escalate someone fairly quickly. And so can you share a little bit about that, you know, de-escalating an angry person and, and, and fairly quickly? Sure. First of all, let me talk about the science and then I can mm -hmm. describe how we do it because it really Absolutely. is counterintuitive, but it's also quite powerful. So what the science shows us is that when we are highly emotional, when the human brain is highly emotional, the prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of our brain is completely shut down. Mm -hmm. And the uh, neural circuits that are involved in emotional processing are activated and they, they dominate our behavior. And unless we have developed emotional competency, and emotional self-awareness and self-regulation, 
we get what Daniel Goldman has called the amygdala hijack, which mm-hmm. is sort of a shorthand idea for emotions basically overtake us and our behaviors are dictated by childhood programming so that we just become reactive. What Dan, uh, Matthew Lieberman and his, his uh, team showed at UCLA was that when we engage in affect labeling, in other words, when the listener labels the emotional experience of this speaker who's having this intense emotional experience, uh, sort of a miraculous thing happens in our brains automatically and unconsciously. And that is that the prefrontal cortex comes back online and the emotional centers of the brain become inhibited. And it takes about 30 to 45 seconds. And so you can take somebody from raging anger to, in, to calm almost instantly, 35 to 40 seconds. Typically, it takes. I, the title of the book says 90 seconds. And that's I, I bent to the world of the publishing. Nobody believe you can do this in 45 <laughs> seconds. And I said, well, the science is out there, but 90 seconds is fine. So that's that's what the science shows. So this is science-based. It's not based on pop psychology. It's not based on crazy, crazy stuff that people just make up. It's based on hard science and years and years and years of field experience. Um, so how do we do it? It's a three-step process. Number one, ignore the words. This is hard because we've been trained from the time we were very young to pay mm-hmm. attention to words. Well, when you're listening to angry words, you've probably heard it all before. There's no new news here, right? Mm-hmm. We've all been yelled at or seen people yelling at other people. Our vocabulary is pretty limited. Even vile vocabulary is pretty limited. Mm-hmm. And so we can afford to ignore the words. And we af- actually have to consciously force ourselves to ignore what, these, what the words are, what people are saying. We're not ignoring the person, just ignoring the words. Second thing we're going to do is we're going to read the emotions. And it turns out that our brains have an innate ability to read the emotions of other people automatically and pre-consciously. This goes back through millions and millions of years of evolutionary adaptation. I won't give you the evolutionary biology of it all, but suffice it to say we can do this. And the reason that we don't do it is because we're never taught about this ability. And it's quite easy to implement once we learn how to do it. And then the third thing we do, once we begin to recognize the emotions that this person in front of us is experiencing, is we reflect them back with a simple use statement. And this, again, flies in the face of active listening and nonviolent communication, all those other really crappy ideas that came out of the 60s and 70s that don't work, that psychologists and therapists and counselors and even mediators still insist on using, even though there's no science to support any of that stuff. So the way you would do this is I would say, Liz, oh man, Liz, you are really angry. You're really pissed off. You're frustrated. You're anxious. You're annoyed. You don't feel listened to. You don't feel respected. You feel like people are ignoring you. And it's kind of making you sad because you feel like you've been abandoned and betrayed by all those people around you that you trusted. And you don't even feel loved anymore. And that's what's really causing you to be pissed off and angry. So do you feel how to change inside yourself? Mm-hmm, right. It gives it gives the person more language to identify and put what they're exactly they're what's what, what I think is going on. We're all I mean, I'm reading I'm reading the science on this and trying to hypothesize why this works the way that it does is that when our when the prefrontal cortex is shut down from this emotionality, we can't access or we can't access the database, the words of emotion anymore. And when we can't access those words and put the feelings into words, that's when the emotional reactivity sets in. 
and we and you've heard the phrase i'm so mad i could punch punch my fist right. to a wall that's emotional reactivity and it's the cause of most violence it's because the person who's really angry is in a state known as alexithemia the inability to articulate or speak to or speak about one's own feelings and words and what we do when we de-escalate is that we're literally lending our prefrontal cortex to this angry person for the 30 to 45 seconds it takes for that person's prefrontal cortex to come back online. And they come, that we lend them our prefrontal cortex, we articulate the emotions that they're experiencing, the dots are connected as Lieberman showed in his study, and all of a sudden we go from rage to calm in 30 to 45 seconds. It's quite remarkable and powerful and transformational. It, it really is because, like you said, when someone is angry, you're just like, oh, they're angry. And, you you know, you're just kind of like going on defense mode. That's right. And you really have to train yourself to say, like, okay, let me take a step back and hear what the person is saying. Like you referenced that emotion. And it is powerful to really give someone back like, oh, you're really saying that, you know, you feel alone right now because that's kind of what they're communicating or whatever that emotion is that they're communicating and to give them that language um, that's is right. really help on de-escalating. That's right. And oftentimes, Liz, they don't know what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. I could say, oh, Liz, you're really pissed off. You're really angry. But really underneath that, it's really feeling abandoned and alone Correct. and unloved. And so, so as we have that label, there are layers and we work through the layers to find out which emotions are really resonating with the, with the person who's emotional. And, and usually there's four or five emotions that come up and we start hitting them and then the person starts to calm down almost instantly. And the thing that's really cool about this is that once you have the confidence to do this, you remain centered inside yeah. yourself. You, you have the centered, calm, peaceful place that you're sitting in. That's why you ignore the word so you don't get triggered. So when you're ignoring the words and just listening to and reflecting the emotions, it puts you into a kind of a state of transcendence. It's almost spiritual where you don't feel like your ego is involved. You don't feel like you're being attacked. You just see this very angry, upset person. Then you have a lot of mm -hmm. compassion and you're able to help them by reflecting back what their experience is. And without ever feeling defensive or engaging in any of that other counterproductive behavior that people automatically revert to if they don't have the training. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I like how you kind of talk about that ego, because when someone is yelling at you or they're expressing their anger at you, because sometimes they're not mad at you, but they're expressing their anger towards you, you kind of like, you're like, oh, I got to defend myself. But if you just took that minute to just pause and hear that person, um, it really would make a world of difference, which kind of brings me to my next question where you reference listening others into existence. Right. Can you explain that a little bit more? What I learned and what I've, what I've observed over many years of this practice is that this goes far beyond calming angry people down. Mm -hmm. And in fact, right now, in the last couple of days, I've been doing a deeper dive back into some stuff that I studied in my master's degree program around family systems theory. So I've been reading Virginia Satir and Marie Bowen and John Bradshaw and people like that back in the 70s and 80s who were of the last century who were writing and teaching about this stuff. Remembering that 
families are dysfunctional and people come out of family, um, uh, come out. If you live in an emotionally dysfunctional family, as most people do, mm-hmm. and you come out of that family, you are going to be emotionally dysfunctional yourself until you learn how to deal with the pain, the childhood pain. And the beauty about ethic labeling is, or listening other people to, into existence is when I can start listening you into existence, I can start listening to and reflecting your deep emotional experiences. I am validating you mm-hmm. as a human being in a way that you have never been validated before. And that's very healing and very Absolutely. powerful, as opposed to the typical problem, which is where most couple fights come from, is emotional invalidation, where we automatically knee jerk and emotion we defend and we do it by trying trying to emotionally value. So, so Liz, you never listen to me. Mm-hmm. And then you might say, Oh, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. And you always do this to me. So, and I say, Oh, well, you're bringing that up again. Now it happened 20 years ago. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, you're right. Isn't that doesn't that sound like a kind of a normal fight? Mm-hmm. Fight's not about anything, except mm-hmm. the desire to be heard at a deep emotional level. And we can stop that cycle of argument and create true intimacy and true love and true compassion and true connection and true authenticity by simply listening to each other's emotions. And that's what I call listening others into existence. I, I, again, very valuable um, information that you can use in any setting. Like as you're talking, I'm thinking whether it's with a coworker, or if you're a teacher, or if you're in law enforcement, whatever title, because we're all people and we want others to listen to us and not just our words, but our feelings. That's right. And a lot of those arguments come up because we're not hearing the emotion That's behind right. the words. That's right. Uh, John Gottman, who's a very famous family marital therapist out of Seattle, Washington, writes mm-hmm. that couple couple uh, relationship fights are always about nothing mm-hmm. they're always about nothing but they're really about everything which is the need to be heard and the need to be validated i love so, that so as a peacemaker that's what i pick up on because at my stage in life if i can help prevent conflict if i can help prevent fights and arguments if i can help people de-escalate situations quickly then they're going to be happier calmer peaceful they're going to be better thinkers, better critical thinkers. God, we need we need those today. <laughs> and, you know, and, and a lot of this stuff we see going on in our society can be dealt with effectively without without the polarization that we experience today. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you can, can you share a little bit about, you know, you talk about, well, well, yeah, I, I was going to. I'll ask you which kind of question goes first, because I don't want to put the horse before the cart, but <laughs> what, why did you decide to bring this program to the prisons? And can you share a little about the Prison of Peace project? Sure. The project started with a letter that a woman who was serving a life sentence without possibility of parole at what was then Valley State Prison for Women in Chowchilla, California, the largest, most violent women's prison in the world at that time, wrote, uh, and she wrote 50 letters to mediators around California asking for somebody to come in and teach the lifers and long-termers how to stop the prison violence. Because in those days, 
the correctional officers were as often instigating the violence as they were preventing it. And the letter, this letter landed on my dear friend and colleague, Laurel Coffer's mailbox, and she took it out, read it, opened up her phone and called me. I live about an hour and 20 minutes from the prison, which is about four and a half hours north of Los Angeles, where Laurel lives. Mm-hmm. And she read the letter to me and said, what do you think? And I thought for about, I thought, this is cool. I thought, well, this will be a really great test of all these listening ideas that I've been developing. Because if I can teach murderers to be peacemakers, who can mm-hmm. gainsay the power of listening others into existence? So I said, I told her, I said, if this is real, we should do it. So we, I spent the next six months since I was up here, spent the next six months in meeting after meeting after meeting with prison officials until we finally got the go ahead in March of 2010 to start training. And so Laurel and I put together the curriculum and started training our first cohort of women, 15 women in uh, April. Yeah, it was April of 2010. And these women were all lifers and long-termers, incredibly ethnically diverse, educationally diverse, age diverse, um, sexual orientation diverse. I mean, it was it was a real cross section. And for me, it was a really humbling experience because uh, I came in and I'm a large man. I'm 6'1", 220 pounds. And uh, I walked in as a lawyer, white haired, old Anglo-Saxon lawyer male, kind of evil incarnate. Every bad thing that had happened, everything to these women happened because somebody looked like me. So it was a real eye opener for me. And it took, you know, a lot, a long time to build trust, but, but it happened because I just, I used the skills and eventually they saw me as not only being safe, but as being a dear friend and mentor. And a lot of the women have been released and we still stay in contact today. It's, it's amazing. So uh, I became their teacher along with Laurel. So that's how it started. Our curriculum starts off with teaching some basic ideas around restorative justice. We're not a restorative justice program, but I was deeply schooled in restorative justice in my graduate training. And so we start off with that because the restorative justice philosophy kind of underlies our view of how to resolve conflict to make a healing, a healing process as much as anything else. Then we teach them how to listen, which includes learning how to listen to emotions. Then we teach them how to, uh, now the curriculum's changed around a lot, but we basically, after they learn these days, they learn how to listen. Then we teach them how to uh, convene and conduct peace circles. And we call them listening circles. They're not like other peace circles, like Kate Pranis, for example, who's a beautiful, incredible woman. Her circles are a little bit more, a little different than ours. What makes our circles different is you have to earn your turn so that in a circle, somebody speaks and before you can speak, if you're the next person in the circle to speak, you have to you have to read, reflect their emotions and what they said. So oh, you wow. return. So it's very cool. So to, it's a very deep listening experience. Once they learn how to do be peacemakers, we take them through some more advanced training in the Peacemaker One, Peacemaker Two workshop, where they get some more advanced skills that they're going to need as mediators and peacemakers. And then finally, when they get through all of that, we have a three day. 24-hour mediation workshop where we teach them the actual process of mediation using what's known as interest-based mediation. It's a pretty standard uh, community-based mediation process that any mediator would 
recognize immediately. And then they go out and they start mediating. And then for those who are really called to the work, we started training them to be trainers. And ultimately they, they became certified trainers of prison and peace within their prisons. And we would come in and set up, a, take us about three years to set up a training cadre. And then they would start training the rest of the general population and begin to train new trainers under them, what we call rising trainers. And so that way the project became self-sustaining in the prisons that we came into. So that's basically how it works. And for, for the first seven years, it was totally pro bono. Laurel and I paid for everything ourselves. Then we started getting some grants and it didn't, it helped, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> I could, you couldn't make a living on it. I mean, I had to do a lot of other stuff to keep the prison project going. Right. Right. So, but it's, you know, once as every single one of our trainers who are all, but a, we have a couple of trainers who are um, Pepperdine law grads who have masters in dispute resolution, but most of the rest of our trainers are all former trainers, formerly incarcerated people who we trained as trainers in prison. They've now been released and they're, and now we hope to be back in the prisons next year, early next year as the pandemic lifts and they will be doing the bulk of the training because what could be more credible than to have served a 20 to 25 year sentence. One of our trainers served a 26 year sentence and he was exonerated. He was wrongfully oh, wow. convicted. Um, and he's going to go back in and teach prison of peace. So it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty powerful. And the stories of course, coming out, the transformations are unbelievable. I mean, unbelievable. Just story after story after story of how once they've learned that the violence, sure, violence is a way to resolve conflict, no question about that. But the only reason they went to violence was because that was the only option they knew about. Absolutely. And once we taught them that there are other ways to solve conflict other than violence, uh, mm -hmm. once they've learned that there are other ways to solve violence, solve conflict other than violence that are more effective, they just jump right on it and they just become total converts. It's amazing to watch. And I've worked in some pretty tough places. For three years, I worked at Corcoran State Prison in California, which is one of the two level four prisons. And uh, I was teaching in a small space about 100 feet from Charles Manson. I was, oh, dealing, wow. I was dealing with the dark. I was in the belly of the beast. I mean, it was really dark. Oh, my. So. Wow. So, I mean, and we're highly respected by the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation and, and um, you know, everybody's waiting. We're, we've been doing distance learning projects during the pandemic. Obviously, no one's going into prison right now. We don't want to go yeah, in and they don't want to in there. <laughs> yeah, how COVID has kind of changed things for you guys. Well, COVID's been, it was really awful in California prisons uh, for a lot of different reasons. <clears throat> you know, you I mean, just think about it. You've got, you take a, 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 a thousand or fifteen hundred human beings and cram them into four or five buildings on a yard that's maybe two acres, maybe maybe two acres, and they and they're in constant contact with each other. You're going to have serious problems, and the, and there has been serious problems. Uh, mm -hmm. the, in order to combat that, the department released a large number of people who were not at risk for violence. So they went from one hundred and thirty thousand down to ninety six thousand incarcerated individuals. So that was good. But, you know, until this thing, until the, until, until the, 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 we get control of this, n nobody is going in to do any programming and mm -hmm. nobody w wants us. And I was scheduled to go into the women's prison 
uh, yesterday, no, this morning, I was supposed to go in for a two-hour training to train some women inmates, and uh, it got canceled yesterday because they got a spike in COVID. Mm. So we'll reschedule for the fall, maybe, I hope. Absolutely, because it, it's really um, valuable, the work that you're doing. I love how you talked about rehabil re rehabilitation, restorative justice, compassion, listening, um, and even the acknowledgement that because sometimes I feel like, especially when we're dealing with the prison population, there's this oversimplification of you're in prison because you're quote unquote bad. But you really talk about like they chose an, an option because they thought that was the only option. And you really are using your work to provide an acknowledgement of um, what, the, what the emotion. And I love how you talk about the circle. They have to earn their turn right. by saying, you know, OK, what did you hear that person saying? What is that emotion? And I, I really love that. That's a really great way to build um, rapport. And this is a safe space. We're here to listen to you. And that's just, um, again, really valuable what you're doing. And so thank you for, for sharing about all of that. And yeah. Let me tell you a story about circles. Yes. We, we were in the women's prison. And one of our trainers told us that they were teaching circles. And one woman in, uh, approached it and sat in a circle she wasn't part of the prison beast training. She just saw the circle and just sat in. She had not said a word to anybody in the prison for 20 years. Oh, wow. In total silence. So she sat in the circle. And the first time around, she passed, which we allow people to do. Certainly, you don't have to. But the second time, she started, she answered the question and started talking. It was the first time anybody had heard her say a word in 20 years. And it's the point you just made. The circles create deep emotional safety when they're conducted mm -hmm. properly. And it's the first time that many of these human beings who, believe me, have had really horrible lives mm -hmm. uh, felt safe. Mm -hmm. the, thing that, the thing that people don't understand, and I certainly didn't understand, even as a lawyer and a law professor, is that murderers are not born, they're bred. People who end up in prison for violent crime aren't born that way. They're bred that way, and sometimes intentionally. Our society has done a horrible job of looking at the root causes of criminal behavior. And we have a, a, a too many politicians mm. who are interested in only preserving their power, position, and privilege, and so therefore lie to the electorate and instill fear on them about crime. I'm tough on crime. I mean, if you're the dog catcher of Clovis, you want the deputy Ser Fresno County Deputy Sheriff's Association to endorse you. And I, of course, it, crime has nothing to do with being a dog catcher, but you're still going to do that mm -hmm. because you're tr they're trying to associate the fear of crime, being tough on crime, with creating a safe, I safe concept in people's minds so that, so that they can get elected. And this happens in every single election cycle. And all it means is we just spend billions of dollars unnecessarily locking people up. In California, we spend more money on our prison system than we spend on the University of California. Oh, wow. And that's true in many states. I mean, California has a huge system because it's a big state. Mm -hmm. But you, you look, watch just proportionally, look at the total budget item for corrections. And that doesn't even include district attorneys and public defenders and court systems and all parole officers and all that stuff. 
um, it's just the physical cost of the prison. It's oftentimes much larger than the educational budget. And yet you never hear these politicians talking about that, especially the conservative ones who are supposed to be fiscally conservative. You never hear them talking about, hey, are we getting the best bang for our buck when we put somebody into prison for life? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's the conversation we need to be having. And when I approach political people about this, they absolutely refuse to have that conversation. It's a much needed conversation because, I, like you said, when we're talking about people and especially um, those that are incarcerated, it's, well, we have to keep the bad people locked up. But then the budget, you know, it's just, we have this ongoing cycle and no one is ever getting to healing. And when people have healing, then you have a more cost-effective society. But we never want to put the money into healing people. That's and so right. I also like how you had brought up the grant and how, you know, grants are nice, but they don't typically fund the whole entire program, including the staffing. Right. And so I think it's really important that um, people, you know, again, listeners, I encourage you to do, as Doug has said, and look at that line item as far as the prisons and the budget and look at the educational budget and say and really challenge your um, politicians and those that are running for office to say, what are you doing? And I love that, you know, as a Connecticut resident, I love that the program is here in Connecticut. And so I'm going to be more conscious to look out for that and to really do my part to make sure that. Yeah. we Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pre-pandemic, we got a, we were very fortunate in that we got a, a, a very large grant from a family foundation in Connecticut, the Singer Family Foundation. And they provided oh, wow. they provided the grant to us to, to, to start prison at Peace at McDougall Walker uh, Correctional Institute in Suffield, just outside of Hartford. And we did that for almost two years until the pandemic has sort of, and we're just like everywhere else, we're waiting for it to, to, to subside so we can go back. And then we're going to obviously because so much time has passed, we're kind of almost going to have to start from start from scratch. But since mm -hmm. we're going to have the program on video film, it, we think it'll be more cost effective. So mm -hmm. Here's the thing. that the, There's no such thing as a bad person. Mm -hmm. There are people who are clinically, have clinical problems. And there is a very small percentage of people who are unsafe with themselves and they're unsafe with the community. And they have brain dysfunction that we're not going to be able to solve. Those people need to be isolated in some way or another because they really are, they've got serious clinical, biological, mm -hmm. physiological problems that they can't be fixed. But that's a, less than 1% of the total population of people who are incarcerated. Um, the vast majority of people are in for drug-related crimes, of course. So that's a huge population. And with respect to the women, every single woman I've met, almost to it, I'm going to say, I'm going to, almost every woman I've met, every incarcerated woman I've met that I've worked with, that I've trained, has either been raped or she's been violently abused or she's been drug addicted or some combination of all three. One young woman who her story is so common, she was 21 years old when we met her and came into our program. She was a gangbanger in South South uh, LA. And she was raped by her uncles when she was three years old. 
She was raped again when she was six years old. Her mother addicted her to heroin when she was eight years old, and her mother started prostituting her when she was 12 years old. She killed her first guy who got violent on her at 13 as a prostitute, killed her second guy at 14 as a prostitute, and went to prison for life without possibility of parole as a 14-year-old. Oh, wow. That's a common story. Is she a bad person? Well, let me ask you, if not you personally, mm -hmm. but anybody who's listening, if you've gone through that kind of experience, are you a bad person? Or are you a person who's been completely neglected by our culture and our society? A young black woman, South LA, in a horrible living experience, and nobody did anything to reach out to her to help her. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a very powerful story, because at the end of the day, people who are incarcerated are people. And I think we often as a society forget that, that these are people, people who have been through things and have made the best choice that they thought they were making with the deck of cards they were dealt with. And so I love that your program provides them with another option. And thank you so much for coming to Coffee and Combos and sharing about your program. And please tell the listeners, where can they find you? Where can they learn more? How can they support? So I, um, and on every podcast that I'm a guest on, I create a special page on my website and I created one for, for everybody who's listening. And the website is Doug Noel, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L dot C-O slash coffee convos. And that's a page that you can go to to find out more about my work. I have something for everybody there. If you want to get a free ebook about how to listen to other people into existence, I'll send that to you. If you want to get access to my book, Deescalate, and a bunch of other bonuses, you can do that. And if you want to invest in yourself and take some online training that I offer, you can do that too. Or just look around and learn from everything that I've written on the website. So the website again is dougnoll.co forward slash coffee combos, just the name of your podcast. Fantastic, fantastic listeners. It will also be in this episode bio. So please check out Doug Knoll and all the work that he has done. Um, again, thank you for coming. And I'm going to ask you my last question, which is what's in your cup? And this is where I ask my listeners and my guests, what are three things that you're adding to improve your day and your week? And while you think of your answer, I'm going to give you mine. So listeners, the three things that I need to have a better week and a better day, um, I'm going to add time management. I want to be more organized. I want to be a better steward of my time. So I'm adding time management. I am adding listening from this conversation. I really want to improve my listening skills and be a better listener and not just to the words, but to the feelings. So I'm adding listening. And then the last thing I'm adding to my cup, I'm going to add tea, something physical tea to my cup because I have not had any this week. I was not a good tea advocate. I had no tea this week so far. So I'm adding tea, time management, and listening to my, my cup. Doug, what are you adding to so that you have a better day and a better week? I live in the central Sierra Nevada of California, not too far from Yosemite National Park. And as you probably have all heard, we've been going through a mega drought. Mm. And so I live on a well, I have a well and septic system. And I'm, we're kind of, I mean, we're hooked up to the PG&E grid, but we have solar and we're going to get, we're going to get solar batteries in a couple of weeks. So we're, that will make us not so reliant on PG&E. 
But the one thing that I'm really interested in doing is re-sculpting. We've got 10 acres. I'm going to complete this starting in the next couple of days through the fall. I'm going to re-sculpt all of our land to capture as much rain harvest as I can. Oh, wow. So that we, instead of living in this arid, dry place, we are going to capture, I think we can capture hundreds of thousands of gallons of water if we're really careful and smart about it. And to that end, I just got a gift. Actually, my family gifted some money out totally spontaneously. And it was enough money for me to buy a new tractor <laughs> and a backhoe and all the equipment that I need Oh, wow. to do this work. So what I'm going to be doing, in fact, as soon as we're down here, I'm going to go start reading the owner's manuals. <laughs> it's oh, learning how awesome. all the equipment was delivered yesterday. It's sitting out here on the yard and I got, I'm going to become a heavy equipment operator <laughs> and put that in my hat. So you're adding the environment to your cup. I love yeah. it. That's my next big thing. How can we, when we're living in climate change of the magnitude that we're seeing right now, how can we each individually be stewards of whatever property we're on, whether it's a suburban lot or where I live in the mountains on 10 acres, how can, how can we steward this land to make it as lush and fertile and productive as possible and do our part to reduce the drain on our climate and on our natural resources, smallest footprint possible. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm, my next big project. I love it. I love it. I love it. Doug, it has been a pleasure. Please keep the Coffee and Combos family updated on any new projects or ventures you are up to. I'll do that, Liz. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Take care.